This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our guest today, Andrew Harvey. Uh, Andrew is an author, religious scholar, and teacher of mystic traditions. Uh, he's been the author of over 30 books, and he was the subject of the 1993 BBC documentary, uh, The Making of a Modern Mystic. And he's also the founder of the Sacred Activism Movement. One of the things we'll be discussing with Andrew today is his trips to the sacred animals, the white lions. Uh, but more on that later. Uh, Philip, uh, please begin. Andrew, good to have you with us. Um, we've been wonderful to be with you, Phil. Such a delight, as always. Um, you've been studying the world's mystical traditions for many, many years, decades now. And um, you've done it as a scholar, and you've done it by immersing yourself deeply in many of those mystical traditions, which puts you in an in a unusual uh, place in, in, the, in the world. Um, you've obviously learned a lot over the decades of uh, studying these traditions. What would you, Andrew Harvey of 2016, tell Andrew Harvey, the young man at Oxford, if you had the opportunity? What have you learned that would you pass on to that young man? What a beautiful question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the first thing I would say to him is, don't worry, you're going to discover something that will totally astound you and be far more magical and far more beautiful than anything you can now imagine. Hang in there, that's the first thing I would say. And then I would say, go for it, be your whole self. You'll make many mistakes, but if you trust that fundamental energy for truth and love at the core of yourself, it will see you through because the divine is mercy and you will be guided if you're sincere. Then I would say, I'm happier at this moment of my life than I've ever been, more fulfilled, more deeply at peace with the work I do, more convinced that it is part of what's essential for this time and deeply happy in my personal life because at peace with my cat, which is very important, <laughs> and loving my actual ordinary personal life, so really feeding myself properly for the first time. So there is a balance coming into the core of myself, I would say to him, which you can't even imagine possible because you're so destroyed by anxiety and desperation and despair. But it can be built over time, and you can come to live life with real serenity and real passion and more and more energy as you grow older. So mm -hmm. it's all worth it, baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew, uh, uh, my understanding is you were born in India and you lived there until you were nine. Uh, you were educated in uh, English boarding schools and then Oxford yes. University, and then you actually taught there French literature and, and Shakespeare. But at some point you yes. became disillusioned and it seemed, from what I read, there was a yearning to go back to your roots in India. What, what took place? How, how much of an adjustment was it? Was it a uh, culture shock for you going to, to Oxford? And at what point and what happened 
that led you back to your, the place of your birth, India? I think that I experienced by being elevated to an All Souls Fellowship the heart-mind of the elite because that's an elite prize and an elite college and an elite institution. And everybody visits the college, the Prime Minister, the Archbishop, the CEO, the leaders. And I was given an initiation too young, really, into the vanity and hubris and craziness and corruption and cold-heartedness of the elite, and it nearly sent me mad. Because when you meet the elite, you see how endangered the world is <laughs> because they're so vain and so drunk on their own formulae. And that was also a time in which I was suffering emotionally very much because I was going through a series of battering love affairs. And I was also seeing through the whole Western paradigm because although I wasn't yet awake to mysticism, I was increasingly awake to the horror that we were doing in the world in the name of progress and democracy, the wars that we were creating, and also vivisection and the unspeakable horrors of industrial civilization, just raping the earth and destroying the habitats of animals. So I think all of that led to a real breakdown of the heart, a mm -hmm. baptism in a kind of what could have become a suicidal despair. And the only thing I knew to do was to go back to India because India has always been for me the place of joy, the place of initiation, the place of living naturally in the sacred. And I went back to India not looking for anything, but I went back to India just to be in India, just to smell the smells, just to smell jasmine, just to sit in the shadow of the Taj Mahal. And I was skinned alive, really, by being back in such a way that I finally became open enough to open to the mystical. And a series of mystical experiences then happened in tremendously fierce order. And I realized I knew absolutely nothing, <laughs> that here I was, a trained monkey in the circus of the Western elite, who knew nothing of the real world of reality, the real world mm -hmm. that had manifested itself to me. So that induced years of schizophrenia because on the one hand here I was supposedly at the top of the pole, but seeing right through what was going on and unable to really begin the true journey. But I forced myself and I went to Ladakh and I met this amazing teacher, Tuxi Rupacha, an old Mahayana mystic Buddha person who was truly a fountain of emptiness and wisdom and mm -hmm. true compassion, somebody who was really awake. And that began another set of journeys which really gave me access to the disciplines that I needed to begin the journey that I've started, which is a journey of the sacred marriage, of the transcendence and the eminence. It has to have the mother at the core of it for me, which is why I've been able, through her grace, to take the different journeys and different paths, because my fundamental inspiration has been Ramakrishna, mm. who 
was graced the vision of the eternal light mm -hmm. and the manifestation of everything from it, and then graced the experience of that experience through all the different paths leading to it, but in increasing embodiment. And that's the key for me. Yes, you know, that's interesting you should say that, Andrew, because when I, when I was reflecting on your uh, immersions into different traditions, Ramakrishna is exactly who I thought of, and you sort of took, uh, did something similar in the modern world. And along the way, you've had, you've had a lot of teachers, and yes. at one point you, you uh, made an important contribution with your critique of uh, of the guru methods, uh, the guru yes. disciple methods, and and the the hazards of that. Um, yes. At the same time, you acknowledge the importance of teachers. So, for the sake of our listeners who are you know on the spiritual path and looking for guidance and meeting teachers, and um, how do you recommend people balance the um, the tendency of people to get too enmeshed with a guru, and on the other hand, needing the, the guidance of someone who knows more than we do? Such a beautiful question. I think the first thing that I would say to any seeker is become aware of a very dangerous shadow in yourself, and that is the golden shadow. And that is your tendency to project all the qualities you don't really want to live out in yourself on some icon or guru or Christ figure or Buddha figure. Be aware of how corrupt that really is and start acknowledging how you do almost everything to avoid really being responsible to even beginning to think about what all the mystics of all the traditions have told us because they've experienced it, that we have as divine grace, divine consciousness, and our whole life is about realizing it to embody it. So take back the golden shadow and start listening to the teachings from all the traditions as news of your own true self your own shattered and whole self, your own crucified and resurrected self, your divine self that lives in your human form. And when you've allowed yourself to receive that immense good news, start doing the practices that will help you evolve the qualities you need and you'll be brought by sacred friendship, by the deep, deep, glowing bonds of sacred friendship to meet people who are not gurus, but something far more important than gurus. People who are your soul's living beloved, your heart, mind's living beloved. And in that relationship, which is quite naturally a relationship with immense respect and immense reverence and above all immense listening. Miraculous truths are exchanged but not in a relationship of any kind of power, a relationship of complete compassion and complete mm -hmm. equality and complete love. The true relationship and that's the beloved, beloved relationship. 
And if you're a real lover of God, love itself will give you your lovers. And those will be the supreme teachers to you. Some won't be in human form. Some will be animals. My teachers, supreme teachers have included my cats who have taught me unforgettable, heartbreaking lessons of tenderness and of loyalty and of forgiveness and of immense courage in the face of death. I mean, if you have a true relationship with an animal in a sacred way, you have sacred initiation from that animal. That mm-hmm. animal is your beloved too. So it's really finding the beloved field. And then those who are meant to be your beloved in the education of your soul will turn up, but you won't have with them relationships of secret subordination. You'll have free, happy, joyful, ecstatic relationships of the deepest kind of sacred friendship, which will flower in great truths being born in both of you through Mm -hmm. this collaboration in the sacred heart. That, I believe, is the new model that to me is the new evolutionary model. And it includes the authority that belongs to the guru, but it doesn't have the addiction to power. Mm-hmm. And it includes the freedom of the new model without its complete lack of how these things work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, yeah. Andrew, uh, you, you mentioned before that uh, when you were in uh, England, when you were in Oxford, you, you went to a period where you, you were depressed, you weren't feeling good, and then you went back to India. And when you went back yes. to India, you, you experienced a series of uh, mystical experiences uh, that, yes. that, that transformed you. W- what was it that, was there something in particular that initiated those experiences? And what were those experiences like? And, and do you continue to have them? Oh, yes, yes, and yes. Okay. The, <laughs> those were very wonderful and seed experiences. I think... Sometimes at the beginning of a mystical life, you're given, like, in a great fugue, the themes that are going to dominate the fugue. And everything that I've experienced mystically has come from these three experiences. So the first was one fundamentally one of the divine light as the base of reality, as the consciousness of reality, radiating in everything, and sounding as Om. And I had it walking down the beach in South India, and I was about 27 after dinner, and it was a very strong experience, and I opened the Upanishads, and it says, when you are ready, you will hear that the whole universe is chanting the sound of the Brahman Om. So I realized it was a classic experience, and I bowed to it, although it frightened me. And then the second experience was um, that I was graced in the dream vision to hear the music of the souls before they're incarnated, the great cloud of souls, or perhaps between incarnations, I'm not sure. But there's vast starry clouds of souls and to hear what they sing and how they sing in ecstasy to the beloved in extension with the beloved. And I one of those souls, and then there was an impulse from the core of the singing, which is a message beyond words from the beloved. That now, and to come down, we had to go down, we had to separate, we had to become one with matter, we had to be incarnated. And the agony of it, the, and the ecstasy of it, because experiencing in the separation the longing, that was 
such an initiation into the path of love that I've taken later with, with Rumi and with Jesus because it shows the price of incarnation of embodiment. And then the third dream vision was really of embodiment itself and the goal. And I was on the beach and this very beautiful being, half male, half female, I didn't know what sex he, she was, but it was, he was, she was so commanding and calm and beautiful that I was looking at him and he came and he put his head in my lap and he looked up at me and he said, I am you. And I realized beyond thought that I was being invited to this mysterious path of embodying love and knowledge to become this being, this sacred androgyne. So that has been a huge key to the kind of work on embodiment I have done. So out of all of these three themes, the theme of transcendence, the theme of the deep, deep enmeshment and imminence, then the theme of really embodying that. So all of that has been my work. Interesting. Andrew, and a big part of your work has been uh, what you uh, call sacred activism. And yes. Uh, some years ago, you started an uh, institute for sacred activism and continue in that work, which essentially, as I understand it, is a marriage of the inner uh, mystic and the outer uh, urge for social justice. Tell us about that and what... what, what was the spark that got you to um, create the institute, and and uh, what what is the nature of the work? Well, I came to understand on this radical journey that love cannot be real until it's active. Love isn't just emotions. Love isn't just mystical experiences. Love is a commitment to serving the evolutionary heart-mind of the beloved in reality by turning up and doing works of justice and compassion that are attuned by sacred consciousness to the will of the beloved through adoration and through prayer and through meditation. And that when you unite the two noblest passions in the human heart, the passion for union with God, with the passion for justice, when you unite those two holiest of passions, a third passion is born that combines the two in a laser-like golden energy of embodied divine love acting in the world. So for me, there cannot be any authentic philosophy or practice of embodiment without that embodiment making the last and most important leap and embracing action as a sacred field of truth and possibility and birthing power but from a divine consciousness from a consciously sacred commitment and from a conscious commitment to deep practice to keep yourself attuned always to the sacred truth of the situation and the sacred energies that are trying to pour through you from grace. So it's a training in the boot camp of the special forces of evolution. 
And that is, I think, one of the reasons why it's attracting a lot of people at the moment, mm -hmm. because many people realize that we've come to the showtime and that the world is exploding and we need in place a vision that takes us the deepest possible into the inner self so as to gain the wisdom and perspective and power that you can only find through grace there and combines that with a very radical and very clear-minded and sober commitment to work swiftly to change the conditions of life on earth otherwise simply we'll face extinction soon mm -hmm. or if not extinction then horrific prolonged dying in an awful situation of our own creation mm -hmm. Don't you feel? Yes, I, I think that's beautifully put, and it, it's very relevant to today. Uh, and and, and uh, I wanted to ask you along these lines, and I assume it, it's it's related to these points you're making. Oh, I'm your, sure your, it your, will be. Your, your your trips to visit the white lions. What what how well, does that yes. to the scheme of things? Well, I had the honor about eight years ago, just before I published the hope, of visiting Linda Tucker and mm -hmm. the lions, the white lions she guards at a preserve in Timbavati. Linda Tucker is one of the most extraordinary sacred activists on the planet, and she has been given the task by the African shamanic tradition, by a great African lioness shaman, Maria Kosa, of being the protector of the white lions. And from the point of view of the African shamanic tradition, this is a very holy and very demanding task, because it's said that in their mind, in their vision, the white lions are the most sacred creatures on the planet. They guard the love consciousness at its most intense and pure. They are its crystallization in animal form. And if they are destroyed, the world will end, the creation will end, because it will be a final violation of the purity of the core of the heart of the creation. So this is big stuff, and she does so her work with such intensity and such truth and such humility because she is somebody who's had to face death threats and real, real hardship, but has achieved a huge amount against great odds. When I went there, I was not skeptical because I'd been trained in the classical mystical traditions, which are so relentless in their over-honoring of the human and really say basically we are so much more advanced and so much more special mm -hmm. and I found that absolutely crippling at first when I was surrounded by the lions but I made an act of surrender and then all kinds of very subtle and profound experiences began with the lions which convinced me beyond words that I was in the hands of master beloveds appearing in nature and that is how the animals teach us. They don't, they wait for you to be humble enough to listen. And it's very hard to learn from such a trained position as I've been. So it was a very humbling experience, mm -hmm. but it's a very transforming experience because once you feel the pure, wild, holy energy coming from them as coming from the source of the creation itself and them being the perfect, quiet, luminous, strong, radiant conduits of it, once you have, through grace, that experience, it completely revolutionizes your understanding of nature. Nature becomes a totally divine explosion of, of power and beauty. Mm -hmm. and, and is there a way, uh, Andrew, for, for people, if they wanted to pursue this, if they wanted to 
experience the white lions? Well, How would yes, they do that? because every year I take people twice a year, mm-hmm. and it's a small group, and people are helping the lions by coming, and Linda teaches her amazing understanding of sacred activism through lion-hearted leadership, which is a distillation of the African shamanic tradition in 13 laws, and we marry her immense experience with my vision of sacred activism, which are directly their brother and sister. Mm-hmm. And that is an inspiring background for people to go into direct connection themselves to the lions. So they get teaching, they get sacred practices, they get sacred silence with the lions, they get the best possible opportunity for a radical initiation. And uh, people can find out more on your website, which is yes. <clears throat> excuse me, andrewharvey.net. Um, and I'm actually looking at it right now, and I see uh, something about an initiation event that you're having in the Chicago area for the Institute of Sacred Activism. Yes, I am. Linda is coming, actually, oh. in early February to re-begin the Institute with me in Chicago. So she's coming with her vision of sacred lion leadership, and I will be marrying mine to her, and we're going to open the Institute again. It's been cyberspace for a while, but we're going to open it actually again here in Chicago, so that's going to be very exciting. And, so and awesome. what does initiation uh, entail um, in, in the, at the Institute? And a, a related question, does the yeah. Institute or does your sacred activism take specific forms that you uh, uh, bring people into, or do you uh, train mm-hmm. people in certain ways to uh, manifest their vision of activism in their own way. Thank you for those questions. The first reply would be this. I had a kind of dream vision of how sacred activism needed to be taught, and it was a dream vision really to inspire me to study the ancient mystery traditions. And what I discovered is that in all of the major mystical traditions, there were mystery traditions like Eleusis and like the mysteries of Egypt. There was a three-part initiation. The first part was an initiation into glory, into the wonder and amazement of being human with divine consciousness, to really saturate oneself in the possibility of what can be born still if we continue to evolve with that gift. The second stage is always in the mysteries a radical descent because by now, after the glory, you are strong enough to face the actual situation of yourself, of your shadows, and of the shadows of the world situation, and you need to go right down to the bottom of the pit to find out what you need to know and what you need to feel, which only the shadow can teach you. And then you come up Baptized by the light and the wisdom of the light and baptized by the dark and the wisdom of the dark, you come out into the third part where you celebrate the birth of a new kind of human being that's united the heights with the depths and has the tools now to negotiate the reality of what's happening in the world and to commit themselves to doing real acts of love and justice that come from the deepest part of their nature, from the deepest heartbreak in their nature alongside other people who I've encouraged to organize in what I've called networks of grace, groups Mm -hmm. of between six to 15 people who come together to do the work. So what the initiation is, is a baptism in the 
process of birthing a new kind of being through unifying the mystical and the activist and the tools to do so and the commitment to do so in whatever way is natural to you and I can suggest ways and I do suggest ways my own personal sacred activism is very devoted to animals in every way I'm about to raise money to start a farm project which is going to be run by my wonderful executive director a small project where we're going to look after badly hurt, badly injured animals and nurse them back to health and find them homes. It's going to be a real modeling of an oasis, which we hope will spread because it's going to be just a small farm, but really attuned to the needs of these animals in the hope that many, many hundreds of people who have limited resources but big hearts can start taking animals in in this way because we've got to start responding to the horror we're creating would be obliterated as human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, congratulations on your work, and, and uh, we will post information uh, on our podcast at Spirit Thank Artists. Thank you so on, much. So people can find out more about this, and I'm sure many people will be inspired to get directly involved and to help you, and that certainly that, that is the hope, and, and that you. is the hope for humanity. Uh, any final we words? We can do this, but we have to come together in these kinds of ways. Right. I think it's great that these projects that I'm opening up are not projects that are funded by billionaires. They're projects right. that need $20 here, $20 there. But that's how Bernie Sanders got his movement going. Right. We need a movement like that to support the causes that are really popping up and need desperate, desperate help. Right. And I, and I think social media is on your side because uh, yes. one person hears about it and then uh, everybody now is connected usually to several yes. hundred other people, and they can get that ball rolling. Any final words you'd like to share with our listeners for the great work that you're doing? Well, I would just first of all love to thank you both for being on such a beautiful journey with me and asking me such serious and such profound questions. That is an honor you gave me, and thank you. What I'd like to really say to everybody is I think it is now time to look squarely at the world and to acknowledge as deeply as we can that we are in very extreme danger. I think the evidence is, of course, in front of all of our American eyes in the complete insanity of the election, where a certain proportion of people seems to be envisaging an obviously crazy narcissist of megalomaniac proportions as president. So it is time to really take stock of where you are on the path and go very much deeper, and I mean this for all of us, into sacred practice so as to be grounded in ever deeper peace and calm, so as to be able to stay sane in what's going to be exploding madness and chaos. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to find something that you really want to dedicate your life to helping because that will complete your being and give your life meaning in whatever circumstances you find yourself. And that is the truth of sacred activism. We're challenged to be adventurers of the great birth of compassion and justice and to give what we have and what we can wholly and in the dark, risking everything, gambling our lives away for God. Mm -hmm. So this is a message for the gamblers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Andrew, one, one final question from my side. Um, 
you have always been such a, an eloquent voice uh, for uh, the sacred traditions and for social justice. I know that you're working on some new projects, some books uh, in a collaborative way. You know, one yeah. of them is with Adam Bucko, who we've we interviewed uh, recently. Um, why collaborations? And tell us what you're working on. Well, for me, one of the aspects I love of God most is God the dancer. And dialogue between two loving friends is the ultimate dance. And in Persian, they have a word called sohbet, which is mystical communion. It's what great sacred friends do with each other. It's what Rumi and Shams experienced in its wildest, highest essence. And what I'm doing in about five different books now is collaborating with people whom I truly have sacred friendships that have instructed me a great deal so that a third, a child, can be born when we come together in the field of the dialogue. And I believe that this is one of the ways in which this evolutionary wisdom that we need is coming through because no one person can have the whole key to the puzzle because the puzzle is relational. So by writing these books, I'm hoping that truths will emerge greater than any of the truths that are poured into them through the form itself and show that it's through this kind of sacred listening and sacred relation that we come into being dancers with the great dancer. Fantastic. And so I've done, does that, that's the philosophy of the heart mm -hmm. behind these books. And I think it's very important for us teachers not to get stuck in our own shtick, but to open it up to really extraordinary people who can help us refine our position or change it or really, really see it from a different angle. Otherwise, we get stuck in our own vision of things, and that's a fatal prison which so many teachers get trapped in, it seems. Right, exactly. Good. So very well put. Uh, we look forward to having you back on the show, Andrew, because there's much more to discuss, and uh, we well, wish you tremendous you, success Bart. in what we're doing, and hopefully we can contribute in some small way to your, to your uh, activities. So, oh, you already have. Thank you so much for your lovely, lovely call. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. for being with us, Andrew. Keep up the good work. And um, people who want to find out more about your work can go to andrewharvey.net. And um, we hope many of them will. And we'll have everything posted up at spiritmatterstalk.com. Thank you again. All the best.